I'm Tom Campbell. I uh, am a physicist, also a consciousness researcher, as are you, a consciousness researcher. And I've been doing both professionally um, until I retired for probably about 40 years. So my my consciousness uh, research and my uh, getting out of graduate school and getting into the work world both happened around the same time in about 1970. So that's where my uh, professional beginnings start. And within a few months of that, I was fortunate enough to get to meet Bob Monroe. And Bob Monroe, as you probably know, wrote Journeys Out of the Body, Far Journeys, and Ultimate Journey. He was a guy who had spontaneous out-of-body, matter of fact, I think that's his term, out-of-the-body is a, is a term that he coined. Um, he had spontaneous out-of-body experiences and didn't really know what to do with them. Matter of fact, they frightened him at first, and then he decided that he would go with it and play with it and see what he could do, see if how, what he could control and what did it mean. So he did that, and his books pretty much represent his diary of his experiences when he was out-of-body. So I got to meet Bob in the very early 70s, uh, about probably late in 1970, maybe early in 1971. And at that time, there was no Monroe Institute. You know, there, none of that existed yet. But he had built a lab at his property. He was a wealthy gentleman. He was the, he was the um, owner and chairman of um, uh, Jefferson Cable Company in Charlottesville, Virginia. So he uh, was doing very well financially. So he, on his property, which he had quite a bit, about 500 acres of property in, in Virginia. So, you know, whiteboard fence, horses, you mm -hmm. know, grazing nice. in the fields. You know, the Virginia gentleman thing, big white house on the hill, you know, a little lake. So it was very, very nice property. And he, he built this lab and wanted to study consciousness. But he didn't really know how to go about that. And that was about the time myself and a friend of mine, electrical engineer, met him. And um, we volunteered to be his technical and his scientific help if he would teach us to do what he did. So that was the deal. And he agreed to that. And so Dennis and I uh, started making trips out to, uh, at that time, it was Whistlefield Farms, which was his name of his estate. And we were putting in 15 to 20 hours a week with Bob Monroe. So that's about a half-time job. Plus, we had jobs of our own. Dennis and I both worked at the same, at the same uh, place. That's how we knew, knew each other. And that began a reawakening for me in this, uh, I guess, study and experience of consciousness. So I did learn to go out of body on demand just you know bob was good on his his ability to teach us didn't take very long maybe a year maybe six months to a year and what i wanted to do was evidential things because i'm a scientist and i need 
proof. I need evidence. You know, it had, that's very important to me. So I did evidential things. I uh, did remote viewing. You know, we did healing. We did uh, exchanging uh, thoughts between uh, two people that you know weren't connected to each other. You know, that weren't able to hear or see each other. Uh, we just tried all kinds of experiments using the mind to see what we could accomplish in an out-of-body state or even in a, in a meditation state that was impossible, you know, things that shouldn't be able to be done from a physicist's viewpoint, you know, of, which is basically a materialist viewpoint. So after some years of that, I knew without a doubt that what we were doing was real, you know, the effects were real, what we were able to affect the remote viewing, you know, how accurately we could describe targets, um, the healings that we were doing, these were obviously real. And the statistics that we kept on it um, verified that, you know, it was, I don't know, like 10,000 to one that we were just lucky, <laughs> you know, it's, so the, the, uh, the statistics were very good, but I still didn't get it at a deep level. And it's like that, you know, you can understand things intellectually, but that's not the same as understanding things at a, what I call the being level at a, mm, at, at a an deep experiential space. level. Yeah. yeah experience. Well, I was experiencing all these things, but still, you know, in my mind, it was like, well, that's interesting. And it sure is strange, but, but, you know, and, but it's just hard to go there when you've been, brought up in a culture where materialism is fundamental mm. and trained you know, specifically in a materialistic science yeah mm. so anyway uh, the the thing that uh, kind of was the last straw i guess that got me to the point where i no longer asked is this real was a, a an event that bob uh, thought up he had both dennis and i go out of body meet above the lab and then go on an adventure, not a body adventure together. And he was recording Dennis's audio and my audio, you know, at the same time. Now he could talk to either one of us, but we could not talk to each other. Dennis and I were, were actually triply uh, uh, isolated from each other. We were both in an isolation booth with an empty isolation booth between us. So this was acoustic isolation. And the booth I was in was also electromagnetic isolation. It was a, it was a Faraday cage. So uh, we did that. And when we came back after about, I think, close to two hours of, of uh, doing this, uh, Bob played both his audio and my audio together. In other words, he started them both. He rewound them to the beginning, started them both at the same time so that they'd be synced in time. And there you know, we were having conversations with each other, uh, answering each other's questions. Oh, do you see that thing? Whatever you mean, the white thing with the red ball on top? Yes, that's the thing. Uh, and, you know, to, and we were obviously at the same place at the same time, seeing and experiencing those things, having conversations. So I think at that point is when it took a, a giant shift from in my intellect, knowing that it was true to in my intuitive side and my, you know, at the depth, at the gut level, knowing that it was true. And after that, I stopped asking, is this real? You know, is it just a mind trick? Is it somehow my, my mind, you know, playing tricks with me in some way that it, you know, 
kind of biases me to see things in certain ways that I, you know, that I'm, I'm kidding myself. So after that, I didn't any longer say, is this true? And I kind of cut back on the trying to develop evidence because I really didn't need any more evidence. You know, you only need so much evidence. And at that point, my mission was to understand how did it work? Why did it work? What were its limitations? You know, what's the structure behind it? Because obviously it was, it was structured. There was logic behind it. It wasn't a random experience. No, mm. There was logical structure mm. behind it. You did certain things, you'd get certain you know, results. Yeah, there were laws and, applying to that reality there. Yeah, there were mm. laws. There were, there were rules that applied to that reality. So I wanted to understand them because that's what physicists do. They model reality. So for the next 35 years, my task was to... And that wasn't all with Bob Monroe. I was with Bob Monroe probably the best part of a decade. But then after that, I moved off and went to other places, moved out of that area and so on. But for the next 35 years, what I did was research in the non-physical. So I would do something in the non-physical, some evidential thing, and then I change a variable and then I do it again and see how that variable affected what I did, you know, and I then have to do repeat that maybe 10 or 20 times to make sure that it wasn't just a one-off. You know, you can't just do something once. You have to do it a lot of times before you're confident that it's repeatable and that it's, you know, a real event, not just a one-time oddity. So I did that, and there's lots of variables. <laughs> it took a long time. It was a very tedious work in the sense that you just have to get into exactly the same state and then repeat things that you were doing over and over again, changing variables until you realized what variables affected what, what was important, what wasn't important, what could you do, what couldn't you do, and why. And then I needed to come up with, a, with an understanding, one overall um, construct, you know, logical construct that explained it. Because the reality, the, the, the non-physical reality, right, had rules, had structure, but it wasn't, it wasn't structure that was, can I say, uh, unrelated. You know, if you were talking about remote viewing or talking about healing or talking about uh, using your intent to modify weather patterns or whatever it is you were doing, it's not like each one of those was a separate thing. It was obviously all part of one thing. So there, there needed to be one model, one understanding of how that worked, you know, that would explain all of it. So then as a physicist, I had discovered in this, this uh, tedious uh, research of mine, what, the, what some of the facts of consciousness were. All right, here are the facts. Here's how this works. And I knew the facts of the objective world, because that's what physics is. It's basically a understanding the facts of the objective world. So then my job was to find the overarching understanding, the, the viewpoint, the, the paradigm, however you want to put it, that explained both the, the subjective and the objective. Because all the paranormal things all happen in the subjective world, they all happen in the intuitive side of your, your, your uh, thinking and your thought process. They're all on the intuitive side. The 
physical world is all in your intellectual side. You know, you learn about that. You learn how the physical world works, but that's a, a measurement thing. You measure it. You know, it's a, it's, it's a uh, objective intellectual process. The paranormal things and consciousness was all on the intuitive side. So anyway, um, I worked on that for that 35 years. And finally, I thought I understood it well enough to tell somebody else. So I wrote these books called, you know, My Big Toe. It's a trilogy of three books. And altogether, it's just under a 1000 pages. And it was basically a theory of consciousness. And I knew at that time, one of my facts of consciousness was that consciousness is fundamental, and the physical world is not. And I knew that because I could change things in the consciousness side that would affect the physical side. But I couldn't change things in the physical side that affected the consciousness side, you see. So the, the arrow of causality travels from consciousness to the physical. Therefore, physical is a subset. Consciousness is the superset. So I, you know, I knew that. So that's just an example of one fact, you know, of consciousness. Sure. And of course, so um, when you say my big toe, toe is an acronym for theory of everything. Just so people aren't confused. Yeah, toe yeah. Is, a, is a theory. And well, actually, to explain the name, uh, toe is a theory of everything. And Albert Einstein kind of started that acronym, toe theory of everything, when he was trying to unify both quantum quantum physics and relativity, because quantum physics and relativity kind of have a fundamental philosophical disagreement between them. They, they do not, one does not just run seamlessly into the other. They kind of object to each other in a, in a fundamental philosophical way. So he and everybody else knew that there must have been some other understanding at a higher level from which both quantum physics and relativity could be derived. And that's what he was looking for, a toe, a theory of everything. Because in those days, and still true, uh, quantum physics and relativity basically are everything, you know, in physics that they describe all of the objective world. So his theory of everything was really a theory of how quantum physics and relativity both can be generated from some more general overarching understanding. Well, that's a toe. And I call that a little toe because it's only a toe of the objective world. Now, it's just a little, yeah, just a little toe. I had a, a big toe because I not only could describe the physical world with my toe, I, I could indeed show how quantum physics and relativity, you know, both came out of my toe. I did what Einstein wanted to do, but besides that, I also had an understanding of the subjective world. So this was a theory that was a theory, a science of the subjective world and a science of the objective world, both. So yes, I could derive quantum physics and relativity from first principles, but I also could do th come up with things like, what's our purpose here? You know, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What's the point of our life? And if you're if you're unhappy or struggling or anxious or depressed, I, you know, this theory will tell you exactly why that is, you know, and, and exactly what you have to do, you know, to not be. Now I say exactly, I'm talking about, you know, the theory of why things are the way they are, not necessarily exactly, uh, you know, every, every uh, detail, but this is 
big picture, fundamental, fundamental things. Uh, so anyway, that's my big toe. And the reason I put my in there wasn't because I was so proud of it that it was mine, but I put my in there because if it's not your experience, it can't be your truth. Okay, so if you've never experienced consciousness as I have, then the things I tell you about the consciousness system are just something that you can believe or disbelieve or kind of put on the side and say, well, maybe, you know, I don't either believe them or disbelieve them, but that's all you can do with it. It's not really yours. Your truth has to be based on your experience. So it's important that everyone stay skeptical and open-minded. That's, that's a key thing. You can't, you can't make progress if you're not skeptical. And when I say skeptical, I mean about everything. You, know, you must be skeptical about everything, including anything that I say, you know, or anything that, that you say. You always have to be skeptical. skeptical and and the, the thing you have to be most skeptical about is yourself, because we are very good at convincing ourselves, you know, that things are the way we want them to be. That's just, you know, we humans are very good at that. So in any case, skepticism is a, is a requirement. So now I have this model. It's a scientific model. It's um, a logical model that uh, explains both physics and explains not, not only makes the paranormal normal, but explains all of the subjective world. All right. So that being said, that kind of says where I came from and, you know, what I've, what I've done, where I am. And uh, I guess I'll turn it back over to you then. So now you can go wherever you want to go with that. I understand that your, uh, your interest is in uh, life after death possibilities. Mm. That's and, kind of the main focus of, of my, my research. Yeah, although it does kind of, of course, that question itself encompasses all of the nature of the mind and the nature right. of consciousness. There's a lot to unravel in, in, in your, in your life because you've done so much. So let's, let's start, I suppose, from the beginning with, um, with Bob Monroe, Robert Monroe and his, and his books. Um, so for those who don't know Robert Monroe, he's probably the pioneering name in out of body exploration wrote, as you say, these three books, which document his, um, his experiences from when they first began to up until the end of, of when he wrote about them. Um, and he, of course, has the Monroe Institute or had the Monroe Institute before he passed, and it's still there. Um, I actually purchased the Gateway Experience CD set. Um, unfortunately, I started doing them and then ran out of time when I had other things, and it get, you know how things get pushed to the back. But mm -hmm. I, I do intend to carry them on. Many people, understandably so, see not only the Monroe Institute, but other institutes that promote this kind of what they would consider pseudo-scientific or fringe mm -hmm. scientific things as obvious money-making scams or money-making schemes um, mm -hmm. that are based on nothing more than kind of tricking the gullible into parting with their money. What would you say to those who claim that kind of thing? <laughs> well, the thing I would say is you need to give it a try. You know, talking about things that you haven't experienced is obviously uh, is talking out of ignorance rather than talking out of experience. So give it a try and give it a try with an open mind and with being skeptical. And if you give it a try, by that I mean a serious try, not just, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go see if it works, you know, and do something and it won't work. Of course, that's not going to work that way. We're talking about developing 
your intuitive side. Now we spend all of our lives developing our intellectual side. You know, we start in kindergarten, you know, learning our alphabet and learning, you know, speech and learning arithmetic. And we spend our whole life learning in our job, everything we do. And we tend to live through our intellect, particularly in Western culture. We tend to live out of our, out of our heads is, is the way it's often phrased. But that's just one avenue, one of two avenues for understanding and information processing. And uh, I don't know what to say, learning. That's just one of two. The other side is the intuitive side. Now, the person who is a materialist that says, if it isn't material, then it isn't real. Therefore, consciousness isn't real because consciousness isn't material. Um, those kinds of people have only, only used and have only developed their intellectual side, their logical side. And they will probably deny that they even have an intuition or that intuition exists. But that's their loss. <laughs> intuition does exist. Intuition uh, is a real thing. And it turns out that if you develop that intuitive side, you will find that it can be even more accurate and more reliable than the intellectual side. Now, in the beginning, when you haven't developed it very much, it's not so reliable and it's not so accurate. Now, if your intuition is what you call a gut, you know, a gut guess, you know, well, then it's just a guess. And okay, you might uh, get it right, maybe even more often than wrong, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about guessing. I'm talking about getting information from that intuitive side. And you can check that information, you know, when it's you get in evidential, inf evidential information, and you can get just as accurate and just as reliable getting information through the intuitive side. Now, we use this a lot, but we tend to use it like the most people have out-of-bodies, you know, most of the people's out-of-bodies are spontaneous. They don't do out-of-bodies on demand. It just happens when it happens. And sometimes they develop little oh, rituals that they go through to, to make it happen. And then it kind of happens more frequently. But even that is rare. That's, that's the few people. The great number of people who have had out-of-bodies, they just happen spontaneously. Well, it's the same with over on the intuitive, you know, with the with the intuitive side. That's the way we tend to get that information. Sometimes we'll just get a download. We'll get information that we just know something is the way it is, or it just happens, and it's intuitive. And sometimes it's just amazingly correct. And sometimes it's wrong because we are not really very good at that intuitive side, you know, so we're kind of sloppy with what we do. If you had somebody who never went to school, never learned an alphabet, you know, never learned how to do anything, well, their, their logic would be pretty ratty. Their, their, you know, their thinking, their, their intellectual processing would be pretty poor. They wouldn't do very well. They would have a hard time seeing logical uh, paths, you know, this because of this, because of that, because of the other thing, therefore this, you know, that would be very 
hard, if not impossible for them to do. Well, the intuitive side is the same way. If you don't practice it and work on it for years, just like the intellectual side, then you're not going to be good at it. But you will get little bursts of it now and again, whenever it happens. So many of the big scientific and technical breakthroughs come in what's called aha moments. Usually these aha moments come when people are relaxed, when they're not thinking about the problem, their mind is open, but they have this, this kind of issue that they're trying to solve. They don't know the solution, but they kind of let it go for a minute and just let their mind open and then bam, there it is. And they have this aha moment. Oh, I see, I get it, you know, and they go on. And that's true of artists when they paint or sing or, you know, do whatever they do, uh, whatever kind of art it is, you know, writers, um, all kinds of people who solve problems, you know, not just on the art side, but, uh, but on the technical side. You get insight comes. A lot of that, of course, is coming from the intuitive side. But it doesn't happen on demand. It happens whenever it happens. And you kind of have to get yourself in the right mindset. You have to not be too focused on anything in particular, you know. Well, that's just putting yourself in a really a meditation state, opening yourself up. And then you can get some, some information from that intuitive side. But unless you've, unless you've exercised the intuitive side and experienced it, then for you, it doesn't exist. And materialism will tell you it doesn't exist because intuition doesn't have a material basis. Therefore, it doesn't exist. But materialism is just a belief. It's not a fact. It's just a belief. And it's an erroneous belief. Because there are those who do practice on that intuitive side, and they can develop those skills. And they can repeatedly and very accurately do all kinds of amazing things like remote view, like heal. You know, and they, or, you know, artists who, who live in that space and are very creative. That's where you're creative abilities come from. That's where the synthesis comes from, where you put all these various ideas together and then it, it expresses itself in some creative way. It all comes out of your intuitive side. So people who are very left brain um, are not very intuitive. The right brain's kind of your intuitive side, if we want to put it into the right brain, left brain metaphor. And it really, if you want to live a whole life in a much larger reality, you need to be whole-brained. If you're just right-brained, then everybody calls you a, you know, a space cadet and uh, doesn't give you any credibility, but you know things that they don't know, and you understand things that they don't understand, but you can't explain it to them. So you struggle. If you're just left-brained and only do intuitive process, well, you'll probably have a higher salary than the right brain person because our, our culture values that a lot more. But um, you will probably be arrogant in the sense that you think all of those right brain people are just kind of goofy. And you think all that 
that right brain uh, holistic stuff is all nonsense. And you think all that paranormal stuff is nonsense and, and so on. So your life is very limited. You're living in a, in, a little, in a little world, in a little universe of material things. And what's unfortunate about that is that if you look at the things that are objective versus the things that are subjective, you'll find out that all the richness and meaning and significance in your life, or at least most of it, is on the subjective side. The objective side, you know, the stuff. Well, it's nice. I mean, we all need to live in a house and we all need to have a car to drive around in and have clothes to wear and the stuff is important. But that's not where the significance in your life comes from. The significant stuff in your life comes from relationship, from caring, from love, from, you know, from all of those things that are not objective. Mm. And you can argue Those that meaningful things. You could argue that even the value or supposed value of, of that that comes from um, the objective things, the monies, the houses, the cars, whatever else, the value of those is also a subjective phenomenon because, you know, in and of themselves, pieces of metal or shiny gold coins or whatever are valueless in and of themselves until the idea develops in the subjective human mm -hmm. mind. So right. I suppose all value is subjective by definition. It is. Well, actually, if we want to get uh, picky about it, we would say that there is no such thing as an objective world. There is no objective world. Everything is subjective. But that part of the subjective world that is very low, has very low uncertainty, very, very small uncertainty about it, we call that objective. But it's really not objective because there's nothing in the objective world that has zero uncertainty. For instance, uh, here's a brick. Imagine a brick. That's an objective thing. It's an objective brick. You know, it's made out of clay. It was kiln dried and fired and hardened and it's a brick. Now, if I give you the task of finding its dimensions, well, you'd say that's an objective task. Okay, I'll measure it. Oh, but how do, you, how do you measure a brick precisely? You know, you can't. If you say, well, it's this long, well, if I measure it a little more accurately, it's not that long, really. It's that long plus or minus some error. So you'll never measure that brick any more accurately than your equipment allows you to measure it. So you measure it with a wavelength of laser light. Well, you're only going to measure it down to, you know, eight decimal places. That ninth decimal place is subjective. And when we start, when we start defining the, let's say the length of that brick, well, what is the length of a brick? Well, when we look at it and we can put a ruler against it, it's pretty clear. It's say six inches long. But actually, it's not six inches long. That's just an approximation, you see. And how do you define where that brick stops and starts? Because you get down to the molecular level, which is what defines the brick. That brick is full of lumps and valleys and peaks and things. You know, well, how do you measure? What is it long to from this peak to the other peak on the other end or from the valley or from an average between those two? And then those molecules are moving. They're in motion. They're not sitting still. That whole side of that brick is just, you know, like this all the time. It's moving around. So what exactly is the volume of that brick or the length of that brick? Well, you don't know. It's changing. 
What's the mass of that brick? Well, everything has a vapor pressure. Everything loses molecules they, because some molecules just happen to get enough energy to break the bonding that keeps them in that, that brick and they fly off. You know, everything has a vapor pressure, even steel, you know, if, you know, concrete, bricks, everything has a vapor pressure. So even the mass of the brick is constantly changing and other molecules are running into that brick and sticking there. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's gaining and losing and things. So when you get down to a detailed level, you'll see that it's entirely subjective. But because the uncertainty is low, it's only out in that eighth decimal place where it's fluctuating, then we approximate it. Well, and we call it, right, and we call it an objective thing. But it's not, it's really a probabilistic and statistical thing because it's moving, it's, it's changing. So everything is really a statistical thing. So nothing is, you know, when you say objective, that means it just is, it's fixed and nothing's fixed. So in that sense, there is no objective world. There's only a subjective world. And in that part of the subjective world where the uncertainty is very small, it's approximately objective. So that's our objective world. It's only approximately objective. So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a picky detail, <laughs> but I thought I'd just throw that it's in. It's perfectly relevant, as you say. You know, you're yeah. quite right. Only on the macro level are things really yeah. stable, the, the, I suppose. Only on the macro level do things appear to be, you know, approximately objective. So it all gets down to a matter of opinion. Oh, I think that brick is this long. Well, I don't. I think it's that long, you know, and how can you prove which one's right? Well, you can't because that brick isn't an objective thing. Only to a certain. Yeah, you can always go down in infinitely, in infinitely yeah. specific values of measurement. Yeah. Right. So that's the that's the point is that that I was making is that everything that's really important, though, to our life. You know, everything that all of our decisions we make that are important, that are life-changing decisions. Like, who, am I, who shall I marry? You know, shall I marry Sally or shall I marry Sue? Well, that's a choice of mine. And how do I make that choice? Do I make it logically? No, there's not enough information to make that choice logically. Unless you have a crystal ball that can show you everything that'll happen in the next 50 years, you can't make that choice logically. So how do you make that choice? You make it mostly intuitively. How do you feel about that? You see, and if you have a good intuitive side, then you make it with information. If you don't have a good intuitive side, you're guessing. You see, you don't have that information. But all the things that will change your life, like who do you marry? How many children are you going to have? How are you going to raise your children? Um, you know, that sort of thing. They change, it changes your life. What job will I take? What am I going to do with my life? Where's my career? Should I quit this job and take another one? These things are all going to change your life. Should I join this organization or not? They're going to change you. None of them are logical. Most all of them require an intuitive choice. Or if you don't have an intuition, they require a guess. You see, so... Again, where there's more uncertainty, now you move over into the intuitive side. 
that's where that's where your that's where your analysis has to be on the intuitive side if you don't have all the information that's required to make a logical choice and mostly we don't so if you look at those two sides the objective side and the intuitive side well the intuitive side actually comes out as being a much bigger and more meaningful and significant part of your life than that objective side you know the objective side's the props on the stage that intuitive side are what the actors are thinking and saying you know it's the, it's what's being portrayed it's the it's the life it's the story that's that's being played out it's the fundamental and, part of the play itself yeah yeah so if you're a materialist then you basically go to a play and watch the props and to you there isn't anything in that play except props it's just the stuff there's nothing going on except the 